I am going to deliver what I hope to be a very simple message this morning as a New Year's message on the subject of heaven from Psalm 126. And then I am going to lead us to the Lord's table uh, to eat and drink in worship of our Lord through those means also. Please don't expect anything to be said that is profoundly new or novel about heaven. I have nothing new to tell you about heaven. I'm here simply to remind us what we already know about heaven for the year in which we are going into. Heaven is its own profundity when its reality is set before us. Psalm 126 begins with an adverbial phrase, the word when. Spurgeon said, the Lord's when is our then. And that's how this psalm begins. When. It's the Lord's when. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. The next two verses expound that idea a little more about dreaming. And our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations. Imagine this. These are the words of the nations being quoted. The Lord has done great things for them. And then that's repeated as the words of God's people. The least we can do is say what the nations say about our Lord. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Verse 4 is a prayer that addresses a, a current reality. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The picture there of a desert becoming water. Verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It's one of the great words of the Bible, the word shall. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. That is the word of the Lord. I'm going to use two of the metaphors in this psalm, as I said earlier, to address the subject of heaven. Those two metaphors are dreaming and sowing. Dreaming and sowing. I'm going to use these two metaphors to illustrate the Christian discipline of living out our days with the conviction that all shall not remain as it is now. Heaven is, as with any other doctrine, is not something that we merely give passive assent to. At least I hope it isn't. Heaven is rather an act of discipline. It's a daily discipline. It's a discipline of perspective that, that holds 
a certain future, a conviction of a certain future, and applies it to all of our present realities. It's not like a book we just put on the shelf and say, yeah, I know it's there. I'll take it off and I'll read it when I need it. It'll comfort me sometimes when I go through tough times. It's, it, the, the doctrine of heaven is more like a, like a pair of glasses that we wear that gives us perspective on everything. It, 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 it changes everything. It changes the fears that I experience in life. It, it, it changes the things that I, that I want to see done in this life. It changes the things that I care most about in this life. It's a daily discipline. The words from this psalm are psalms that I have personally been tremendously helped by. They're psalms of ascent. They were psalms that were, were sung to one another as people uh, ascended to the holy city of Jerusalem for, for yearly feasts and sacrifices. And it's been used by God's people for centuries, not for the, the physical ascent to a city that has altitude, but to call people in their hearts upward, to look upwards. And that is how I want to use this psalm of ascent also today. It's how the Lord has, has used it in my, in my own life. I think about heaven a lot. For whatever reason, reasons I may know, may not ever understand, the Lord has given me reason to think about heaven a lot. And when I say that it's a daily discipline, it's something that I speak to myself and say, Barry, do you have it? When Marge is speaking of the burden of a 16-year-old boy, I get that. I understand the kinds of, of concerns. I understand the kinds of fears that can come upon us. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not afraid of death at all. But I am aware of the, of the kinds of strains that come upon our faith through some of the present realities that we face in this world. Heaven is a significant discipline for the Christian heart. The first metaphor is that of dreaming. Note that it does not say that God's people are dreamers. That's not what it says. And that's what some people say about it. So, oh, they're just, a bunch of, they're just a bunch of dreamers. And heaven itself is a figment of their imagination. And they hang on to these mythical ideas instead of dealing with reality. Heaven is instead, of course, the application of a certain reality. But it says that we are like those who dream when they experience, when God's people experience a certain reality. You know what it's like to dream? I hope you do. You're very boring people. I had a dream this morning. I have no idea what it was, but I remember that I had a dream. And I remember thinking, boy, this would be a good, a, good, uh, a good example of what dreams are like. It's, it's like it's when the unimaginable happens. And in the dream, it all makes perfect sense. Like, like I can, I'm a tough guy sometimes in my dreams, you know. And in real life, I'm a, I'm a coward, actually. And it's just people you haven't seen in years all of a sudden arrive. People that have been gone for years are there. And it's all perfectly normal. And you wake up and you realize... That, that it was a dream. A dream is when the unexplainable happens. What is being described here in Psalm 126 
is an experience of God's people for which there is no explanation except God. That is, it's, it's, it's not rational in a strictly materialistic worldview sense. But it's rational when the reality of deity is considered. Do you know what I mean by that? The historical reference is probably that it, when it says that we are like those who dreamed when you restored our fortunes, O oh Lord. It's probably a reference to the people being returned from exile, from Babylon, back to Jerusalem. And the people are, are they're, they're gobsmacked. They're, they're in a daze. They, they, they cannot believe it's true. It's like we're, we're dreaming, Lord. This is, there is no rational way. There is no way in our own resources. There is no political mechanism. There, there's nothing within our own power by which we could have seen this, although it was prophesied, or, or could explain it. And so they're, they're experiencing something for which there is no explanation except the presence of divinity. And all through the Scriptures, people have used this prayer and, and had these, these kinds of experiences. Imagine what it must have been like for the, the children of Israel with Moses as they, as they stood on the banks of the Red Sea and they watched the entire uh, hordes of Pharaoh being destroyed by the flood as the waters came in upon him and they, they, they sang the song of Moses, we call it, Exodus chapter 15, also recorded in the book of Revelation. It'll be our song one day. They'd be like, really? There, there is no way that we possibly could have expected this. This is completely outside of the realm of our own understanding of how things work. Imagine Mary being told by an angel as a virgin, you're going to be pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit and give birth to the Savior of the world. And her, her song is like a dream, isn't it? Imagine the people healed by Jesus. Imagine the, the man who was lowered through the roof and Jesus said to him, said, your sins are forgiven. And oh, yes, stand up and take your mat and walk and go home. Can you imagine? Really? When you restored our fortunes, O Lord, we are as those, are like those who dreamed. Have you ever doubted something that you know you're supposed to believe? I have. I feel like on the subject of heaven, like the words of our Lord to the two men on the road to Emmaus, you Foolish of heart and slow to believe. I question at times, how can this possibly be? Heaven is stunning. There is no mechanism in this world. There is no, there's nothing that I understand about how things work in this world that explains how heaven is possible except the presence of deity. And if I have the kind of faith that says if science can't prove it, then it can't be true, then how do I believe in the resurrection of the dead? How do I believe in the new heaven and new earth? 
And I have doubted. In my materialistic, rationalistic way of thinking, I've been skeptical. And I've had to think it through. Don't get me wrong, I would die for the doctrine of heaven. I'm absolutely convinced of its certainty. But what I am saying is this, is that there's been a time and a season in my life where I've pinned it to the ground and I've put my foot on its throat and I said, prove yourself to me. I will not believe you simply because I've always believed it. I will not believe you simply because everybody else around me believes it or because I've been conditioned to believe it. We don't live in a world anymore where it's possible to have a strong faith that's based on, simply because, on things simply because that's what we've always believed or everybody around me believes it. I think there was a time in this world when we could live in communities that were like that. Well, everybody's always believed this way. But we live in a world now where we're challenged by so many different worldviews and ways of thinking. And I understand that if I let you up off the ground, the implications are huge. It'll change my life forever. I've done that with everything I believe. Heaven is a tremendous faith in a reality for which there is no explanation except God. You see, this, this prayer is different than, than, than other ways of praying. I mean, there are times when the children of Israel would, would gather together and they would say, thank you, Lord, as you gather with your family at mealtimes. And you say, thank the Lord that you use all of these means, but they're ordinary means, that you use all of the ordinary means of this world to bless me. Thank you that I have a job. Thank you that there's rain. Thank you that I have a warm house to live in. Thank you that there's wood to build with. Thank you for all of your material blessings. And, 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 and I should and I do and I will continue to give thanks to God for all the way that he blesses me using normal means. But there's no way to extrapolate from that and say, and I believe in heaven, it seems. Because it's not the use of normal means. It's completely outside of everything is what the people are praying for. Lord, when you restored our fortunes, we were as those who dreamed. Let me give you three, just three quick examples of things that will be like a dream for us. The resurrection of the dead. This will be like a dream. This isn't some kind of slow evolution that is described in the Bible where where, where, where over millions of years, the particles in all the graves will begin to be reversed and then go back together again and, and then slowly become alive. The Apostle Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that it'll be in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, that we shall be raised. It's an amazing, gobsmacking, stunning hope that there's no explanation for it except God. He terrifies me. And he thrills me at the same time. Have you ever stood at the side of a grave, though, and thought, really? <laughs> you ever 
we'll be at a graveside this week. My, my wife's mother will put her body six feet in the ground on Wednesday. And I'll say the words. of great Christian hope. That with the trumpet sound, with the call of the angels, the dead shall rise. But the implication is stunning. Last year when we went through the book of Hebrews, I wonder if you noticed these words from chapter 2. It says that, that Christ came. It says, this is Hebrews chapter 2, rather. Hebrews 2, verse 15. That Christ came to deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Can you relate to that verse? Through the fear of death, not necessarily your own death, but through the fear of death, subject to lifelong slavery. In other words, it, it holds you. The resurrection of the dead is the hope that sting has lost its power. That there is, in fact, a deliverer from that slavery of the fear of death, and it is the resurrection of the dead. It is our Lord who has risen before us. And as the psalmist says earlier in Psalm 34, verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. the judgment of all things. This will be like dreaming. The removal of all that is corrupt and unholy and unjust from this world, it too will be like a dream. This is not some, some slow process like a, a social evolution. This is not a political revolution that will make things better in the world. This is a divine in intervention to remove from this world Satan and all that is aligned with him. That is a certain reality. But there is no strictly rational way to conceive it except the presence of the divine glory manifesting itself. The word hallelujah, I was reminded of this recently in a sermon, and I find it helpful. The word hallelujah is only used four times in the entire Bible. Those four times are all in the book of Revelation chapter 19. And all four times, they are celebrating the justice of God's judgment and the revelation of God's wrath upon the harlot and all those who follow her and His removal of her from the earth. Hallelujah! Four times. And it will be like those who dream. 
all of the all of the enmity that exists in this world, all of the things that we've suffered, all of the hatred that we have borne, all in a moment consumed in the judgment of God, completely removed and gone. And the most amazing thing is that I will not be gone. As one also corrupt and as one also unjust because I have one who is incorruptible. And I have one who has borne justice for me. Okay, let me get my favorite heaven quote out. I gotta, this is just, this is just the, the best thing about heaven I've ever heard a, a man say. John Newton, that author of Amazing Grace, slave trader turned ecclesiastic Christian said, heaven will hold many marvels. At least three great marvels heaven will hold for us when we get there. One, we will marvel at who is not there. The second great marvel of heaven is who is there. But he said, the third and greatest marvel at all is that I should be there. And that in the removal and the judgment of all things that I should stand in the presence of God made pure and spotless by our Lord will be like one who dreams. The resurrection of the dead, the judgment of all things, a new heaven and a new earth. This is the third thing that I find impossible to comprehend except by divine presence. This too will be like a dream. This isn't some slow process of climate change legislation. This, this is heaven and earth disappearing. Heaven is not merely the removal of the redeemed to some ethereal place. We float around in the clouds. Heaven is very clearly taught by the prophets all through the scripture as the remaking of heaven and earth for the redeemed. I wonder how many of you have ever noticed these, these words of, of Peter to the people that gathered around him in Acts chapter 3 after he healed the lame beggar outside of the temple. And as people gathered around, this is something that Peter said about our Lord. It said that he must remain in heaven or heaven must receive him until the time for the restoration of all things about which God spoke about through the prophets. There's just a wonderful little, little nugget there in the preaching of Peter. That our Lord will remain in heaven until He comes and He restores all things. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8 says something very similar when he describes the futility with which creation has been subjected to since the beginning. And he says that creation will experience renewal. And that futility will be lifted. And I... And, and again, I don't know, maybe I'm just too analytical of a person and I think too much, but I go, really? What will that look like? We were up on Mount Washington yesterday. We're sitting out in the middle of a, of a frozen lake on a little island that was all our own. We're probably the only people that have ever been there. And 
we're drinking coffee and eating cookies and, and we're sitting about three feet of snow and my wife says, I hope there's snow in heaven. And I didn't say anything. My sister thinks she lives in heaven. She lives in Los Angeles. And that's what she thinks heaven's going to be like. No snow whatsoever. She saw the pictures of our hike on Facebook and she cringes and goes, Burr. But the snow is just a part of the natural rotation of the earth. Is that all going to change? Will we not revolve around the sun anymore? Will, will, the, will, the, will the universe be completely changed? Will, will the natural elements uh, completely change their course? How far do the effects of sin penetrate into the futility of nature? I don't know the answer to that question. But I do know this, that the futility of creation will end. And I know what, two, what Peter says in 2 Peter 3.12. He says that the heavens will be destroyed and the heavens shall melt away with the roar of it. And the coming of the Lord, and I know what the Apostle John saw in Revelation chapter 21 when he said, I looked and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old earth and the old heaven is passed away. There's only one way to believe all of these things. And it is to believe that God transcends our every rational and materialistic explanation of things and he makes them unnecessary and that he alone explains it. And there are times in our life, there are seasons in this year where you will have to just stop and say, Lord, I absolutely have to place my entire life on the very trustworthiness of your word. I've spent the, by far the vast majority of my time on that first metaphor. Very briefly and quickly, the second metaphor is one of sowing. It's very easily understandable. It does not say that you will be without tears. From verse 5, it says that your tears will be seeds that are sown. Those are two very different things. And it's a very profound picture of life that our, our, our tears are, are, are understood to be seeds that are sown in preparation for a harvest. Now, I'm from Alberta. I don't know a thing about things that people know about in B.C. I don't know anything about the ocean. I've never seen an orca whale, nor, nor do I know any Spanish, by the way. And I don't understand trees. I, I don't understand fish. I don't understand any of these things that people know so much about in BC. And I marvel at it. I really do. But I know something about sowing. I know the smell of the ground. I know, I know what spring is like when the ground's been frozen all year. And I know what it's like to put the seed in the ground and that your livelihood, your existence depends upon its growth. Our tears are seeds that are being planted for a harvest. And if dreaming describes a future reality, tears expound a present reality. We literally feel that this world is not yet set right. When we see those pictures on the screen in memorial, we don't merely say, oh, everything's, everything's good, everything's fine. We're, 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 before we get to that, we're first of all reminded that, hey, there's something wrong with this world. That's what death reminds us of. 
Everything is not yet set right. And we feel that. Over Christmas, I read my favorite Shakespeare novel again. It's, it's the Shakespearean tragedy called Macbeth. And in the fourth scene, right near the end of the book, there's a tremendous description of the human emotion that I've never forgotten. And I've come back to again this year just to read it over the Christmas holidays as, as some, some recreational reading. Macbeth is a story of a man who murders the king of Scotland. His name is Duncan. And Duncan's son flees to England uh, to seek refuge and help from the king of England. And Macbeth ascends the throne. And there are other people in the country of Scotland that, that begin to uh, see that Macbeth is a tyrant and a liar. And one of them, whose name is Macduff, leaves and he follows the king's son to England. And while these two are in England, a messenger comes, a courier comes to tell Macduff that his family has been slaughtered by Macbeth. Macbeth is full of all kinds of insecurity. He sees a threat in every shadow and he kills everybody in sight because he knows that his throne was got wrongly and it could be taken away from him just as wrongly. And so the courier comes and speaks to Macduff and he says, your family has been slain. And there's some inquiry that goes on by Macduff to the courier that says, really, all of them? Yes, really, all of them. My servants, yes, all slain. My wife, my good wife, yes, she has slain also. My children, yes, all of them, yes. Even the youngest, yes, all slain, my Lord. And Malcolm, who is Duncan's son, who's looking to Macduff to, to help him to go back to Scotland and, and get his vengeance upon Macbeth, tries to encourage him and he says, to Macduff, let your grief sharpen your sword. Let it be the whetstone of your grief. Take it and pick it up and let it fill you full of revenge and dispute it like a man. And Macduff says, I shall. But first, I must also feel it as a man. Christians are not Stoics who use the conviction of future realities to deny the feelings of the present. But our tears are seeds. They are seeds that, sh that shall not fail to produce a harvest of joy when the Lord returns and removes those tears by His own hand. 